Hi, I'm Scarlett St. Clair, international and USA Today bestselling author, and welcome to a podcast for my readers. Today, I'm joined by Lexi from Reads with Lexi on Instagram, if you guys are not familiar with her, um, which I'm sure you are by now, but she does um, a lot of my social media, uh, anything that's not like a personal letter, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something that Alexi has done. Um, she does a lot of my graphics and she's she's fantastic. So I'm very glad to have her here today as we talk about my journey to becoming an author. Yeah. So hi. Hi, thank you. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> Preparing for the winter storm that is inevitably coming our way. So I know nothing about that as I'm still stuck in Florida. So it's fine. I know I told you when I first met you, I was so shocked to find out you were in Florida because your vibe is not as a Floridian. It's like, no. it's not. No. <laughs> and I'm getting that now. I was, I was okay. I was content. And now that you said that, and some other people have said that I'm like, okay, let's, let's, let's make this transition. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. I, I, yeah, it's so funny when someone can put off a certain like energy and you're like, wow, I did not expect you to be, I don't know. I just picture, always picture you like, you know, dressed in black in the woods somewhere and it's chilly. That's, <laughs> that's your vibe. Yeah. No. <laughs> Although yeah. when people find out I'm from Oklahoma, they're always like, what the fuck? <laughs> I was going to ask you if you ever thought about leaving Oklahoma. Um, yeah, but I just, you know, I've never felt particularly drawn to any part of the United States. I've always, um, felt more drawn to Europe, basically, um, any place like I used to think I wanted to live in, um, London, never, never would never live in London. <laughs> um, but I do love Ireland and sometimes going there, just like, I remember flying from, London to Ireland and it felt like going home and that was the coolest thing ever and it's just it's just beautiful and very like earthy and I grew up you know on 10 acres of land and I loved walking it I would walk it every day but I loved it I love being surrounded by trees and the greenery and you know I, I think maybe potentially the, the place I would go in the United States if I had to choose would be Washington it's very beautiful there yeah <clears throat> I've never been to the west coast I'm an East Coast girl. Just a few times. I, I have been just a few times. I have less been to the East Coast, so. Okay. Interesting. You look very puzzled by that, but it's very true. Yeah. <laughs> you get it all the time on social media. Everyone asks you to come to the East Coast. It's always New York. Yeah. It's always, it's always New North York. Carolina. I, I have been to New York, so yeah, but that's about it. I, don't, yeah. I can't really think of too many other places I've been along the coast okay yeah well something we learn every day I know <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to get into this episode yeah I do <laughs> it's <laughs> you know it, I thought it would be a great introduction to the podcast because I'm always asked how I became an author and I thought today I could tell that story and uh feel free you know to ask me questions along the way uh, but I am, I just, I want to be clear. I have a script written for this just for my readers. <laughs> um, but, uh, it's just because there's so much and I wanted to make sure that we, that I hit like all the high points. Um, because I, I think, I think I've said this before, um, but people really think I was an overnight success and this is several years in the making. So I'm going to kind of go through that process now. I'm excited. I'm excited for this to get out there because yeah, a lot of people have that assumption. And anytime I see it, I know. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. And I know. Like, it's really yeah. strange to see it when it, when I hit the scene, quote unquote, <laughs> and to know what I had been through up until that point. Uh, and there is a saying, you know, there's no such thing as overnight success, like behind overnight success, there are years, there's years and years of work. Mm -hmm. And that's so true. Um, so if you've been with me for a while, you probably know some of these details. Um, you probably seen a, some of it in action. It just depends on at what point you joined me in my journey. Um, but I want to be clear that I'm not telling you the story to say that you have to do what I did. 
I am only telling you this story with the hope that it will inspire you to blaze your own trail to success, which I think is very important when you begin to tackle anything uh, that is your passion. Um, and so when I decide to go for something, um, I go all or nothing. When I chose my career path at 13, that was 2003 for anyone who wants to count, uh, <laughs> I was absolutely determined to succeed. And I had read Lord of the Rings and it just opened my narrow world into something far beyond anything I ever imagined. It gave me the desire to travel, to create and literally become famous. <laughs> and I, I say that as someone who is so open about wanting to be a famous author, that I actually wrote it into scholarship applications when I was in high school. So I know it sounds a little strange to say, but before I read Tolkien, I didn't really have dreams. The most I'd ever wanted to do was become a nurse because my mom had wanted to be a nurse. You see how you sort of adapt the qualities that you know best, right? Yeah, I swear that's um, a, that's like a mom, um, what's the word, default, yeah. is go, go into nursing. Yeah, well, and because there's this there's this belief system that it's where the money is, you know, go 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 into the medical field because that's where money is. And I know where it comes from. It is a it's sort you know if you grow up in poverty, your parents want that kind of success for you. They don't want you to have to worry about money like they did. So their thought process is the medical field. <laughs> whether or not you're good at math does not matter, <laughs> or, or or whether or not you like it, it doesn't matter. Um. And I do, I remember distinctly growing up and um, thinking I would just do what my parents did, which is just, you know, get on food stamps and rely on DHS to help with utilities when we couldn't pay our bills. And And there's nothing wrong with using those resources or even needing them at all. It was just that I thought that was how everyone lived. I didn't realize until until I read The Lord of the Rings, which sounds so silly, I think, to maybe to some, but not to others. Um, that people live differently. And um, once I learned otherwise, I was full of dreams that I think a lot of people would say are impossible. One of them is that I immediately wanted to become a world famous author. <laughs> I didn't even, I didn't, there was no in between. It was immediately world famous. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to travel to New Zealand because that's where the Lord of the Rings was filmed. I wanted to change people's lives with words the same way Tolkien had changed mine. And when I tell you that those books altered my brain chemistry, I'm not over-exaggerating. I became a different person in the aftermath of that world. And I knew my path was to become an author, a famous author, specifically. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, world famous. World famous. <laughs> yeah, world famous author. <laughs> um. And I talk about this all the time, but I, I say it, I say this a lot. I felt it in my soul. Like there was nothing else for me in the world to do except be an author. And I knew it. I, it was a core belief system that was integrated into my soul. <laughs> um, so in addition to this new dream, there were a lot of people who tried to tell me the realities of publishing. And people like to do that, especially those who haven't found success. And it doesn't even matter if they want to, to be an author. It's just that if they haven't found the success that they have desired, they will tell you what's impossible all the time. And I've heard it all. There's no money in publishing. That came from my uncle. Uh, it's rare to become an author, much less a successful one. <laughs> You'll always need another job to support your hobby. <laughs> <laughs> That's always um, fun. Yeah, I. Ugh, it just shows a level of of you know that I I think the thing that it showed me is that people first of all underestimate me, um, but also a level of of an inability to dream I think mm -hmm. and to appreciate what it means to have dreams, um. And again, I, you know, I'm sure if you've ever had a dream, you're familiar with the feelings that all of those words judge up. It's a weight upon your chest and a feeling that every time someone says it, like you've just deflated, you know, because all you really want is someone to believe in you because, you know, when you're that young and I was very young, I was a teenager, 
you know, I was just looking for someone to affirm what I wanted to do. Um, but I never let that deter me. Certainly. Um, so there are two things you need to know if you are wanting to become an author or wanting to do anything in your life. And it's that the act of people attempting to remind you of the reality of the world, it's called projection. And it comes from their insecurities, not yours. And second, no one, <laughs> absolutely no one will believe in you as much as you believe in yourself. And you are the only person who matters in that equation because this is your life and it's your dreams. And anyone else who believes otherwise can fuck off. Despite knowing that people projected upon me like their own belief systems about the world and that no one would believe in me as much as I believed in myself, I'm still going to tell you the story of how I lost sight of that knowledge. <laughs> this is like an ocean. Like we go really high and we go really low, y'all. <laughs> yeah, I love this story though. You, oh, well, I'm yeah. glad. I mean, I hope it's helpful. That's the thing. It's like, <laughs> let me tell you the story of how I have been all over the place. <laughs> um, but I think it's important to be really like raw and honest about how this wasn't a straight shot to success. And and um, how I did have my heart broken over and over again. And I lost sight of my dreams because I let other people's words and opinions affect me. Um, and I think, you know, so often now I'm able to compartmentalize, but back then I wasn't. And any new author isn't going to be able to do that either. Um, so I'm going to tell you how I overcame all of that. And not all of it. I still struggle from time to time, but I still found success. And this is where my real story starts. Um, it is true that I started writing at the age of 13. I wrote these high fantasy books called, about elves after I read Tolkien, right? Um, and there were all kinds of elves. There were like wind elves and water elves. And there was this stone that controlled the elements. And it had a name, but I don't remember it. And <laughs> there was this wizard named Cytus. And I don't remember what he did, but he was essentially like, a Gandalf fan fiction character. Uh, and I know I loved him though. That's important. Um, and I had these two countries. I can only remember two countries from this world. One was Louisvan and one was Elrivion. And I still have the map somewhere. So I'll have to share that at some point, but I did, I drew like these detailed maps and I like painted it. It was beautiful. I made family trees. I hand wrote pages and pages of history. Like I was dedicated to <laughs> creating this world. Um, I was obsessed with it. Because I could control things in that world and I couldn't control things in my day-to-day -day life. Um, so I wrote three of these books, uh, which were probably novellas looking back on it. But like to me as a 13-year-old, it was definitely a whole fucking novel. <laughs> it was like it was like a sweeping epic. Um, and I also wrote a play about pirates, uh, which I then made into a novel because why not? And uh, the pirate novel actually would later become the first book I self-published in 2014. And in between that, I wrote tons and tons of these short stories that were all literally romances. And that's hilarious now because I never, ever thought I would be a romance author. And here we are in, you know, 20, what is it? 2023? Yeah. <laughs> I have like 2022, 2023. Still. And I am known for my fantasy romance. Um, but yeah, it was crazy mm -hmm. it's crazy to think about how much I wrote when I was 13 and looking back on it actually I can I can look back now and see that even prior to deciding to write novels I had always sought to write something and <clears throat> I had written little books in elementary school that went into the school library and I had written this like short picture book on the bus about a witch and two princesses. And I would find any excuse to write about like trees, like my love of trees, which was is so silly, but whatever, I did it. Um, or I would feel guided to write something and I didn't know what to write. So I would just write, practice my handwriting. So what Lord, the Lord of the Rings did was introduce me to fantasy, which is what my heart, which is like opened up this well inside of me and I was like I know what I want to write about now I have a question and I feel like <laughs> we talked about this on the live but will we ever see these stories even no. if it's like in a new version 
not like not the L. Okay, so <laughs> I wouldn't say like I will say like I have I have always wanted to write about elves in particular mm-hmm. because I love elves and I love you know I don't know why it's not even that I love Fay it's that I love elves. <laughs> yeah. Um, but and I did get to do that in Mountains Made of Glass, which is the novella that we a novella series I should say that we announced this past week. Um, and it was the most fun I've ever had. And it took me back, man. It took me so back, <laughs> so far back. Um, and then, you know, the pirate books are still out there. I have them. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they, I I don't know if I would ever go back to them. They'd have to change so much. Mm-hmm. Um, just like, I think, you know, it's hard to go back and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but it's hard to go back to when stars come out too, because that's also a book I wrote in high school. And it's a book that, you know, was self-published in 2018. And a lot of my identity has changed. And even to get that book, to have that book reissued, like we did in 2020, which I adored, um, we went back and edited it to fit who I had become and to separate it from the narrative that was YA when I wrote that book. And so I think, you know, potentially um, my book, my head is so full of book ideas, though. I, I don't think it would be necessary to go back. Back. Yeah. Okay. I know people are going to ask. We always want to see like old, old handwritten stories from it's authors. Awful. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. No, I think what it was is potential, right? And and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but I, I feel like, um all of these steps had to happen for me to get to this place. And that's the important part. Um, So going back, you know, I'm not necessarily interested in that because all I've, I've strived to move forward, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And the, the, the girl who wrote all of those old books, I'm just not the same person anymore. Um, So I don't know. We'll see. But I think, well, I'm not the same person who wrote those stories then my desire to be a famous author has not changed. Um, And the cool thing was that is that even when I was writing those stories that only had potential, I was lucky enough to have teachers who listened and encouraged me. I had a teacher, Mr. Asher. He ended up being my eighth grade, my freshman and senior English teacher. I am from a small town in Oklahoma and my graduating class was only 64 people. So just let that sink in a little bit. We had the same teachers a lot. Um, But he was actually the first teacher who, who made me feel intelligent. He was the first teacher who suggested I should be in honors courses. And as a result, I took a lot of honors and AP classes throughout my eighth grade and high school years. And he also introduced me to my junior English teacher, whose name is Miss Applegate. Um, She's still my dear friend. She saw the potential in my books and she read my books, um, my books in quotes, <laughs> air quotes. <laughs> and she gave me feedback all in the, again, air quotes, spare time she had, which I doubt was very much. Um, she let me crash her lunches so we could talk about writing. She agreed to teach a creative writing class if I could get enough people to enroll. And I did. And then for two years, my junior and Eng- uh, junior and senior uh, years, we had creative writing classes. And I got to have like a <laughs> like an independent study where I could just work on my novels while everyone else had to do like actual work that she assigned. (laughs) So she was very dedicated to me, like writing these novels and improving, you know, and that's the power of teachers. That's the power of a great teacher. Um, She also encouraged me to submit my writing to a lot of small presses and she helped me enter the Eastern Oklahoma writing contest. And I won first place with a short story. And I don't remember the name of it, but it was about suicide. And so I was like, something's never changed. Like even as a high schooler, I tended to write darker themes. And I remember being shocked that I won because Oklahoma is super conservative and like just, 
I knew like if I entered the next year, I would not win. And I didn't. And a very wholesome story about apple pie won. (laughs) (laughs) So I knew they were done with me. They were absolutely done with me. Um, I was still ecstatic that I won something though. And I literally thought like, this is confirmation that I'm on the right path. (laughs) Except that like, that was the first and last time I would ever win anything (laughs) for my writing. Um, it was like the first and last time for a very long time that I would have any confirmation that this was my path and it wouldn't, honestly, I wouldn't, it wouldn't come until I published a touch of darkness, honestly, mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Just thinking about that and how long it took to have this outside affirmation that what I was doing was right. That, that was years. Yeah. Um, so, but I still continued, you know, I graduated from high school, I went to college and, and I, I do want to note here that every decision I made, like what I chose to major in, it all revolved around the goal of being a full-time author eventually. So I knew exactly what I was going to major in when I went to college, English writing, which is not what people think, drives me insane. People are like, you major in English, you should be good at grammar. That is not what that means. <laughs> Not what that means. It means I can critically analyze texts, which I will say, like, if you are familiar with my work, you can see evidence of that degree at work because of how I look at Greek mythology and how I make parallels to modern society. And you'll really be able to see it in the grim retelling. I call it a grim retelling. It's a fairy tale retelling. Yeah. Um, because of how I was able to analyze the grim stories, the stories from Hans Christian Andersen, the Irish retellings, like it really influenced the way that I would later write my retellings. I was going to say, that's like one of the biggest questions we got this week was which retellings? Oh, I know. And I was like, everyone who's making the parallel or the comparison to Beauty and the Beast, I think will be disappointed Mm-hmm. because it's really not a retelling of Beauty and the Beast and that's it's so funny too because I didn't even I didn't even read like a retelling of Beauty and the Beast while I worked on this book at all I think it just shows how similar a lot of these fairy tale retellings or fairy tales are and so I don't want people to go into it being like this is a Beauty and the Beast retelling Because then I can imagine that people are going to be like, well, everyone said this was a beauty beast retelling and it's not. And and I just want to be like, I didn't say that. I let's be clear. I did not say that. A lot of people forget that we've had, we have fairy tales before Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast, Snow White. We have a lot of other fairy tales that authors can pull from. And it's not just the mainstream ones. And I mean, I can't wait for people to read mountains because it is stunning and fun and dark and it's going to be awesome. I love it and I I just have to emphasize the importance of reading the author's note because <laughs> I think where I got a lot of the inspiration will surprise people because again I've seen a lot of frog prince comparisons and I'm like nope like it's not that's not where the toad comes from I'm sorry. <laughs> um yeah, it's so interesting but um it's interesting what people will people will glean. Uh, And I think, but I also think that's very important when it comes to, you know, just the reading experience. You do take from it what you've experienced. And that's how we determine whether or not we relate to a book, Mm -hmm. Um, which is very hard because in some ways you want people to be able to put themselves in other people's shoes. Uh, But it's not always, that's not always the case. Yeah, but let's get back on track. Um, so we talked about young high school Scarlet. Let's talk about college. And you, like, from what you've said so far, it seems like you were always writing. How did that change when you got to college? Um, I think the issue with college and writing is that all your creative energy has to go into the papers that you write and the homework you have to complete. Um, and it's really hard to put any of that energy into writing novels <laughs> or <laughs> writing even, <what> you want. <laughs> yeah. Or even improving upon, you know, your writing. I remember the hard part about college is that it made me so confused about whether or not I was a good author 
because writing is subjective and it's even subject it's, it's subjective in college too. And I would have this dynamic where half my professors were like excellent paper, like a plus. And then the other half was like, you don't know how to write. <laughs> and I couldn't, I didn't know which one it was right. I had no clue. Like how, how do you handle that kind of feedback? But that is exactly what you get in the world as a writer too. Yeah. So even though my full attention wasn't on my books, I was still querying the pirate books. <laughs> um, and I remember, so back in the day, <laughs> um, you know, the email queries weren't as big of a deal. People were still doing snail mail and I would check my little, you know, college mailbox and have a rejection. Um, and I, you know, I just really wanted someone to represent me. And I, I had this thought that, you know, if someone would just give me a chance, I'd be a bestseller. And I think a lot of us think this way, you know, uh, and sometimes it is misguided, but sometimes you're right. It's just the timing is off. Yes. And my timing was off. Uh, and that's okay. That's okay. The point was, is that I believed in myself 100%, even with the confusion around my professors. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in addition to writing, and querying when I had time, I started to get into the online writing community, which was very different back then. I keep saying back then. I know. I don't know. How, I don't know how many years I, I was in college from 2008 to 2014, if that gives you. But okay. I mean, technology has changed so much. And then the writing community was on Blogger. <laughs> so we all had these writing blogs, you know, and um, that's where I met other authors like A.G. Howard, who uh, if you're familiar, she wrote um, the Splintered, I think it's called Splintered series. And uh, it's an Alice in Wonderland retelling. And um, she's fantastic. You know, I met some really successful authors. Um, so one of them became my beta reader. And I'll never forget, she read my pirate novel and she broke my heart. <laughs> she basically was like, this is not good enough. Um, and I was devastated and heartbroken. And I I I piled up everything I had ever written for that book in the middle of my bedroom and I was just going to stop. I was just going to not do this anymore because the heartbreak was not worth it. So, um, but the next morning I woke up and I bought the book that she had recommended, which was Anatomy of Story by John Truby. And you'll find that authors sometimes fall into two categories. Those of us who've read Anatomy of Story and those of us who have read Save the Cat. Um, so I'm anatomy of story person. I've tried to read save the cat. I don't connect with that one as well as I did anatomy of story. So I read that whole book. I took notes. I rewrote my pirate book. Um, and then I feel like <laughs> this is where a lot of people's success story begins. Cause you know, like they got, they got it right. Mm -hmm. uh, mine did not. I, <laughs> I had a long way, I, eight more years, eight more years before I would find any success. Um, so I rewrote it. I continued to rewrite and rework. Um, I would not give up on this book. And I continued to do this into my graduate school days. And I went into library science as for my graduate degree. I didn't know what library science was, but I thought I like books. Like anyone who goes into library science blind, I was like, I like books like an idiot. <laughs> um, but turns out the library science heavily influenced I think my success as a writer later, because I learned a lot about how people read and how people seek books. And I met people who changed my view of various genre. And I think that was super important and a huge part of my journey towards success. Um, in grad school, I will say it was easier to balance writing. I think because I learned how to just be a student, be a better student, um, and I also started to attend more writing conferences and pitched to various agents. So I was getting my feet wet in these critique groups and uh, <laughs> more rejection, though, more rejection. <laughs> um, but it was through that process that I did receive my first partial request. And I was absolutely ecstatic. It was a new level for me. And I had hope again that I would potentially be seen Um and I would be given the chance to prove myself. That's how, You'll hear that a lot from me, the chance to just prove myself. Uh, except that that's not how it worked. I <laughs> That partial rejection became a partial uh, request became a rejection. Uh, and then a full request followed shortly after that. It also became a rejection. And throughout all of this, um, 
I never remember feeling like this wasn't my path, despite all of the rejection. I still believed that in my soul, this is what I was here to do. Um, and it's that kind of feeling makes you so desperate for someone to just give you a chance that you kind of lead with desperation. And sometimes I think that ends up working to your detriment. Um, I can talk a little bit more about that later, but that was sort of my mantra at that time in life. Just give me a chance and I will show you I am worth it. And that's not the mantra I needed to have. <laughs> I needed another one. I'll tell you later. Yeah. <laughs> um, around this time, though, I met Leslie, who would turn into one of my bonus moms. I'm very blessed to have her in my life. And I was, you know, I would tell her about all my publishing woes. And she went, why don't you just self-publish? And I was like, <laughs> because back when she suggested this self-publishing had a horrible stigma um it was thought that if you self-published you just weren't good enough to get an agent or a publisher there were whole like there were blog posts about this there were agents who actually said it there were you know there were writers who actually said this kind of stuff um and they just had this belief system that if you had to self-publish, you weren't ready to be published at all. But I had been watching a lot of people I admire self-publish and have success. And some of them include Macalia Smeltzer um, and Natalia Jaster. I They were publishing back then and I admired them for, first of all, their bravery in self-publishing, but also their success. Um, and... By the time she suggested that I self-published, I already kind of knew where I was going to start. Uh, so I took the plunge and I self-published my pirate novel. <laughs> um, and I think I did a lot of things right and I did a lot of things wrong. I created a list of resources um, that I had gathered over the years of just being in the writing community. And I had created a marketing plan. I began the process. And, I, you know, me being who I was, I was like, this is it. Uh, I'll publish this book and the rest is history. Like, I'll be the exception to every rule ever made in the publishing industry. And, of course, I wasn't. Um, but, um, but. <laughs> you know, kept going. Uh, so that book was published in 2014. And I made the mistake of looking at Goodreads at like 2am. And the very first review that was left for me was a DNF uh, did not finish. And the reader didn't even hate the book. It just wasn't for her. Like she was even like, this is very well written. But it just isn't wasn't up her alley. But I uh, being not emotionally intelligent enough to handle that sobbed all night long. <laughs> And I have ang high anxiety anyway. So I just like hyper-focused and agonized over what I had done wrong. I thought that maybe if I had marketed differently or if the book had had a different cover, she would not have been so disappointed. Um, and I want to pause and say the reason I felt like that is looking back, I felt like my book gave off the vibe of a historical pirate novel when it was in fact a high fantasy pirate novel. And so I felt like I had done an injustice to people who were seeking or picking up my book because I was communicating the wrong genre. Um, and that's why I felt so, so upset. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously I still, that was still an extreme response. Uh, <laughs> and I, But I do think it meant I wasn't ready for success. It was a sign that I needed more time. Like, it's interesting that that one person put you into the spiral. Yeah. So I think it meant that I wasn't ready for success because I couldn't handle, I couldn't separate that she wasn't talking about me personally. And when mm. you go into this job, you have to know that people's opinions, it's just like being when I was in college, like some professors are going to think I'm a fantastic writer and some are not just like some readers are going to think I'm a fantastic writer and some are not and that's okay but I was not emotionally intelligent enough to recognize that to the point that it made me hate those books and I think maybe you've had some experience with that too where yeah. you worried too much about what other people thought and it lets you affect how you feel about your own work Mm -hmm. yeah because I don't even want to touch the, that series right now 
I know. And I told, I was talking to Leslie um, about that and how I see myself in your situation now where like you have to, it's just, I really do feel like it's a learning curve for new authors where you have to get to the point that you can compartmentalize feedback because feedback shouldn't make you hate your novels. You should still Mm -hmm. be proud of them. Yeah. But I did exactly what you did where by the time I wrote that second book in 2015 and published it, I had no motivation to continue the series and I don't have any motivation to finish it at all. And I was ashamed of those books and I lost confidence in my own writing. Um, so I felt like, I felt like my initial self-publishing journey was all wrong and Mm -hmm. that I could have done it so much better. So (laughs) after I published that second book, I didn't self-publish anything between 2015 and 2018 while I worked on my writing. And I think so many authors now just try to release rapid release books without taking the time to focus on their craft, which if you want to be successful, you can have a certain amount of success to a point if you, if you don't work on your craft, but at some point those books are going to reach a larger audience and they're not going to be as forgiving. Mm -hmm. Maybe is the word they're not going to reach a wider audience than it could if you had worked on your craft more. Yeah, that makes sense. It does. And me with Tricky Magic and Tricky Princess, I'm happy that it's not widely successful right now. Like it's doing great, but. Yeah, I think so. That's I agree. I think it's like if it had reached a larger, larger audience, it would have failed even worse than I (laughs) thought it did, (laughs) which sounds so terrible. But the other part of it is it did give me what I needed to do my second round of self-publishing better. Mm -hmm. And it gave me the time I needed to stop and reflect on how I could improve my craft, which I did. Between 2015 and 2018, I was writing When Stars Come Out. And I went to writing conferences. I submitted pages. I got a lot of feedback. Um, all of the work about all the work I needed to do on my writing. (laughs) Um, and at one point, I think I told you this, I was told that my books didn't have enough emotion Mm -hmm. and it's so funny now because of how emotional my books are, but it's because I got that feedback. As soon as she told me that I needed to layer emotion into my novels, I went and read as many novels as I could and noted how each author folded in emotion. Mm -hmm. And now that's just part of my editing process. Um, So I felt like every time I received feedback on how I could improve, I immediately turned to books. Um, I read craft books. I read just novels. I just tried as often as possible to adapt various things I learned in my own work. And I rewrote When Stars Come Out over and over and over again. Um, And I still, at that point, was like, maybe I could still get traditionally published. Mm -hmm. But I kept getting rejections and more rejections. So even though I was writing and I was improving, um, I still, quote unquote, wasn't good enough. Um, And it was interesting. I... (laughs) I pulled some of the feedback I got from these query letters because now they're it's funny to me based on what's what I have now. So each time I receive feedback on how to improve, I immediately turn to books and I read and I read and I adapted various things I learned and I rewrote and I rewrote when stars come out and I was still receiving rejection after rejection and some talked about how they couldn't connect with the narrative one rejection said there was a distinct lack of conflict motivation and goals that makes the story feel a bit aimless um and what happened is after I went through this traditional process again I realized how much it made me hate writing 
And I was like, why am I letting people determine how I feel about myself, my books, and the things that give me happiness? I was, con- I considered like, what makes me happy? It was the process of creating a book from scratch. From the first word in the document to the last page of the physical copy, I loved the process of doing it myself. So in 2018, I self-published When Stars Come Out, and it had seven pre-orders, and it didn't really sell. (laughs) But the point was, is that I was motivated again, and I was already moving on to my next project, which is a book that had been on my mind since 2016. It's one that I was too afraid to write because I thought I was a young adult author, and this would be an adult story. And uh, But I decided to listen to my gut. And uh, I read a book on how to write romance. And that's how A Touch of Darkness was born. And I didn't put it up for pre-order. I just let it slip into the world. And it was not an instant success. (laughs) And people think it was. But to me, it was. Because it was the first book where I had made any money. I made $2,000 the first year it was out. And uh, I was absolutely ecstatic. It um, It was just, it was amazing to see that something I had written People were actually reading and people had read my other work, but not like this, not $2,000 worth. (laughs) And I remember telling my CPA at the time to prepare for next year because I was going to make even more and I was not wrong. (laughs) Um, But it was interesting. So as A Touch of Darkness gained attention, I thought maybe I would try and see if a publisher would be interested in taking the story on because it was starting to get buzz and... um, uh, because I never had a book that start had started to get any kind of buzz. Uh, but I was rejected again with the comment that the story would have benefited from a stronger inciting incident to really hook the readers. Uh, and maybe they're right, but I have had no trouble hooking readers since I published this book. Um, and then 2020 came and things got a little bit more intense during quarantine. Uh, my books were published as audiobooks by Tantor. I appeared on BuzzFeed Books. I started to make more and more money every month. And then A Touch of Ruin went up for pre-order. And I remember hitting over 100 orders and feeling giddy. I had hoped for 10. 10 was my goal. And here I'd gotten into the triple digits. (laughs) I didn't know what was happening, but my income kept growing. And I started to think at that point, I can do this full time. Because up until then, I had been a full-time librarian. So by the time A Touch of Ruin was released, I had had 199 pre-orders and I was nervous uh, because a lot of times people say the sequel to your novels like doesn't do as well as the first, you know, it's like that sophomore book thing. And I initially, I do think people were less inclined to like it, which is so strange now because it has turned into people's favorite book. But I have this feeling it's because it is the sad book and At the same time, we all went through severe trauma during COVID. So it became the book that everyone related to. And I think that is a very beautiful thing. The other thing about A Touch of Ruin that was so hard is that I didn't realize it then because I wouldn't, I, that book came out in April, I think, and I wouldn't lose my dad till November, but I essentially wrote in that story how I would later lose my dad. And I will never forget that. And I will never forget that knowing that as I was losing my dad, that I would not have been able to let him go if I had not written that book. So A Touch of Ruin has a really meaningful space in my heart. It's very hard. Um, But after that, I was like, what do I do now? Do I, yeah. <laughs> what do you do now? You know, like, do I work on a game of fate or do I write a touch of malice? And I thought, and the reason I was conflicted is because by then I had readers who had feedback, you know, like good, like nice feedback. Yeah. Like they were like, I want a touch of darkness from Hades point of view. So I let them vote and they chose a game of fate. And I remind everyone of that now because <laughs> all the time, everyone's forgotten. Like either you weren't there at the time or, or you forgot, or you're like, what the fuck is this publishing order? And it's all because of readers. So (laughs) I placed the blame on them um, happily though. And uh, so I started to work uh, on A Game of Fate. And I will say like, we've had a lot of discussions about A Game of Fate. Mm -hmm. While we say it is 
Hades' point of view of a touch of darkness. It does have its own plot. It does I will I will say that until I am like blue in the face. Uh, the same with a game of retribution, which is so different from Ruin, mm. like a completely different story in my opinion. Um, so it's a, it's a whole lot of things. Um, <laughs> around this time, I had started to make about 10k per month from my books, which was more than I made, way more than I made at the full time librarian. <laughs> um and I was taking a lot of vacation just to write a game of fate to the point that my friends were like what are you doing like why are you taking Fridays and Mondays off because I would take four-day weekends to try and binge write and it was because I needed to finish this novel um and then the pre-orders had also reached over 500 I think it was like 575 or something (laughs) that's when I was like I can do this full-time And I remember telling my friends when I started to really follow my gut on this, like I knew it was the right time. And one of my friends said, I don't know, maybe this is a fluke. You know, you don't, you don't want to quit your job where you have stability. And then another friend was like, why don't you just save up for six months and then quit? And I was like, fuck no. And I remember getting that feedback on like a, like a Saturday. Mm -hmm. And the next day I was just like, I'm quitting. (laughs) (laughs) So I walked in on a Monday and I went into my boss's office and I said, I'm about to tell you something that's going to shock you because I hadn't been very vocal about, they kind of knew here and there, like what was going on. Like I was writing books, but they didn't know what books and they didn't know how popular they had become. And I said, you know, I'm going to, this is my two weeks notice. I'm going to become a full-time author. Um, And I knew that leaving my job was the right decision. And I knew that I would never make less than 10K per month again. Um, If anything, my income would just keep growing. And so after dreaming about being a full-time author for 17 years, I did just that. And my income did keep growing. (laughs) I haven't made 10K per month in a very long time. (laughs) Uh, Far from that. So um, once I became a full-time author, I published A Game of Fate. And that was the first book. I distinctly remember that being the first book where readers told me they were taking off work so they could read the book. And I was like, that's a milestone you never think about. You know, like you always think, oh, I want fan art. Or like one of my milestones was like, I want to open my ebook and see the, you know, 200 people have highlighted this quote. But I never thought like, I want people to take off work to read my books one day. But once it happened, I was like, oh my God, that it it was amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after that is when I, I just, you know, I don't have any breaks. I think a lot of people are like, there's no reset time for me. I just jump into the next story. So I started working on Malice. And, you know, I, I, a lot of people were with me during that time. It was around the time I lost my dad. Uh, but I still had about 9K, I think almost 9K pre-orders for Malice. And that was just ebooks. And I am i don't know why, but it did not occur to me what that would mean on release day. It did not occur to me that once that book released, it would be instantaneous feedback. It didn't occur <laughs> to me. It did, I had no clue. I was so ignorant. I just, I can't tell, I can't explain it. Um, but I also noticed that my physical books were sales were exceeding my ebook sales, which is very kind of, it's kind of unheard of in the publishing in the indie space. You typically, you sell more ebooks cause you're enrolled in KU. Uh, but then someone told me I was going viral on TikTok, and I didn't know what that meant either. Like <laughs> I cannot tell you how I just lived under a rock. And even though people would say that, like, oh, your books are viral on TikTok, I'd be like, oh, ha, <laughs> I had no clue. I had no clue what it meant. And then when Malice released, I I think I understood it a little bit more, but it's still, I, I don't know that it hit home for, actually, I really don't think it hit home until recently, what it meant to be viral. Um, because then once Malice released, I don't know. I know you remember this, but we had so many issues with it. It was Mm -hmm. the wrong copy got uploaded. And so everyone had this unedited version of malice, you know, and then we had to go in and update it and we had to communicate with KDP pretty regularly. So they would push out the update to everyone's Kindle. And it was then I realized that I couldn't do this on my own Mm -hmm. anymore. It had become too much for me. And one thing I did throughout my whole publishing journey is wait for people to come to me. So 
Initially, when A Touch of Darkness first released, it was only an ebook. I waited for people to ask for the paperback before I had a paperback option. And then it took me a long, a long, even longer time to have hardbacks because I waited for readers to tell me they wanted hardbacks. And I will say, I, I wish a lot of authors do that. Yeah, it's my biggest uh, advice to people, especially because indie publishing is so expensive. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I just, I know how hard it is. And I think that people are going to try to read your work no matter what, no matter what format you release in. Um, but once you start hearing feedback, you know, there's demand and mm-hmm. then you can see it through. But I, I, like, I wouldn't do anything like produce. I wasn't going to produce an audiobook on my own because it was going to be very expensive. So I waited until Tantor came to me. You know, I, I didn't do anything until there was demand. Essentially. I knew when a publisher came to me or when, Tantor came to me. It was because they saw that my book was successful. So they knew that there would be success in this avenue. Right. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how I played my game. And I think one of the reasons why I didn't have to invest money where it wouldn't, where I wouldn't have any return on investment, because the other thing you have to remember, as much as this is a passion of mine and I do follow my gut, it is still a business at the end of the day. Um, but Malice, you know, this, I think around this time with Malice, this was the time when I thought, man, I really need help. I, I needed a team who could help me. So I didn't have so many mistakes upon publication. So again, I did, I started to, I didn't necessarily query publishers and agents. Uh, my friend had an agent who sat down with me to chat and um, I had publishers reaching out to me. So again, it was like, there were sort of these circumstances where I had these instances to chat and you would think that with my success landing an agent or a publisher would be so fucking easy it was not and I think this speaks to the prejudices that the traditional world have against indie authors Mm -hmm. and they are very much alive and I have a lot of beliefs about them may or may not go into those but I just wanted to read to you some of the things that I was told um because it it's absolutely mind-blowing so this first this first quote is from one person we sadly realize that we can't do much better for you than you're already doing for yourself one of our biggest customers is Walmart but they only sell mass market books and would be reluctant to carry novels that have the content of the Hades and Persephone saga. Target <laughs> does well with the trade format, but not so well with erotic content. We could certainly access the library market and would expect to see orders of about a thousand copies, about the same as independent bookstores. You're already selling in Barnes and Noble, so those sales would only slightly increase. But unfortunately, we worry that you might actually lose some of your Amazon digital sales because we would have to price the book higher to cover our overhead costs. And you would only be receiving a percentage of that income rather than the full amount you get now. I'm not going to go into, I will go into, actually. (laughs) I will go into how wrong they were later. Another quote from a completely different person. You've also been doing incredibly well with this, and I can tell you that it's incredibly difficult to get over 10K a month with a traditional publisher. Another quote. You would have to write YA fantasy romance before you could write adult fantasy romance to establish yourself in the market. Another quote. Adults who read romance won't understand the fantasy, and adults who read fantasy won't understand the romance. I hate that one. That one. I'm shocked that that was communicated to me, someone who writes uh, adult fantasy romance. So, but it was. And here's the thing. Uh, The thing about these rejections is I have no doubt that these people believed what they were telling me. But if I had listened, I would not be where I am today. The reality is, is that each of these people were wrong about me. And what this proves to me is that I did what I set out to do. I became the exception to the rules. So not long after these rejections, Bloom Books approached me. And let me tell you, I was so skeptical. (laughs) (laughs) 
because I had had all these previous experiences mm -hmm. and publishers had reached out to me to say they were interested in publishing me only to tell me that they couldn't do it. So when they did say like, hey, do you want to hear our pitch? I was like, I don't know, you can try, but just know <laughs> that I'm skeptical. Um, the thing that they did different though, is that they offered something none of these other people had, which was control over my process, which is something I absolutely love as an indie author. The thing that Bloom realized that no one else was getting is that self-publishers are successful because of what they've been doing. And they weren't interested in changing our processes. They were only interested in helping us further what we were already doing. So contrary to what other publishers said, they showed me a map of where my books were across various Barnes and Noble stores in the United States and the saturation levels. And they said, we can get you into more stores. We have, we have opportunity here. They said they could get me into Walmart and Target. And they did. I have strong support from libraries to the point that when QMM was released, it was a library reads pick for December, despite how little time those librarians had to read it and choose it for library reads. It's insane. They've also helped me develop fantastic relationships with indie bookstores. And last, but certainly not least, <laughs> I make six figures per month and I'm with a traditional publisher. <laughs> Isn't that insane? It's very it insane. It just shows like if you set limitations, if you set the limitations, all you're going to get are the limitations. Mm -hmm. But if you know in your heart that the truth is else is something else, you will have that truth. Yeah. So even given the support of my publisher, I still operate with a mindset that no one will believe in you as much as you believe in yourself. There's a given narrative to all things, uh, just like it is in the publishing industry. And I choose to believe that their narrative is not mine. So even when I'm faced with things that they say can't happen, I still believe it will happen for me. And I say all this to say that I'm not upset that I went through the years of critique and rejection because I know I wouldn't have become the writer I am today without going through the process of querying those agents and publishers and getting rejected but I did let it motivate me. And even if it brought me down, I gave myself one day to be sad about it. And then I let it fuel my determination the next. I'm grateful that I went about publishing the way I did because what it did is it didn't put limitations on me and it didn't put me in a box. And I've already been told that if I wanted to traditionally publish, I couldn't write what I wanted to write. And I would have hated that. And I, I tend, you know, I'm a Taurus, so I tend to <laughs> dig in my heels when people tell me I can't do something. Mm -hmm. That would have pissed me off. The way that I went about publishing ensured that when I did make it my way into the traditional world, I could do whatever I want. And I think people look at me and they think, oh, well, Scarlett just releases, you know, all these books. But not everyone is as lucky as I am. Not everyone gets to write what they want and have their mm -hmm. publisher just release it into the world. A lot of people are told no, even now, that they cannot write what they want. But because I self-published and did really well, I can transition into the traditional world and release a crazy book about fairies, <laughs> which I'm very happy for. Mm -hmm. um, and no, I know. I don't know if we're saying this later or down our podcast, but you created this ripple and people see what where you are now and they think it's just a step there. And they don't realize everything you went through and they don't realize what you've paved to be where you are now to make these decisions and have control. And I, as a new author and a reader, sometimes I see other authors and I get worried. I get excited, but I'm like, try, try to like go back and work on your craft because that's something that I wish I did myself. I think that you see this more because you've been here from almost the beginning. Mm -hmm. So you knew what the environment was like when I first started. And I will hold that I think truly successful self-published authors also have, I don't want to say truly successful. That's mm -hmm. not a good word. 
I think I will hold. I think, I think, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's twofold. You get to ter determine what success looks like for you. So it all depends on what you want. If you want to be world famous, <laughs> um, I think part of your goal needs to be working on your craft. Mm -hmm. It's not easy, but it's something, and, and you will, and I know it's hard because a lot of people are like, well, writing's so subjective. How do I work on my craft? But I think you know it when you hit, I think you just know when you hit it, when mm -hmm. you hit your voice, when you find your voice. I know all my books, it's kind of funny because I'm like, I know my books like, they're not the same, but they often rhyme, right? <laughs> yeah. There's a, there are some key elements that make up a Scarlet St. Clair book. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when you know you have a voice and a brand. Um, So yeah, I get, I get that. I get what you're saying. And I think I, I think I, I know I've inspired a lot of people to write. I want them to take the time to improve their craft. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can publish, publish your books because maybe that's the only way that you can learn like me. Cause that, <laughs> that's the case here. I'm telling yeah. you the story of how I did it and fucked up and how I, how I redid it, you know, <laughs> but I do think it's important to not think that I was this one hit wonder. Cause mm -hmm. I'm not, I, have a history behind, you know, a touch of darkness and it, it's one of rejection and pain and just desperation. Be, I was so desperate to be good enough. And I just think it's so important to, for people to know that and to remember it if they're interested in starting this journey. Mm -hmm. But I, I do, I think it's interesting. I, it's, it's interesting to see your path and how you're, you're modifying it now Yeah, because you know, you didn't like, you didn't like how it was going. Mm -mm. No, I want to be better and I don't want to do what everybody else is doing. Like just seeing people. I will. Well, and I will say like, that's the thing. And I say this a lot, which, you know, uh, comparison is the thief of joy. <laughs> yeah. And I say that because it's so true. If you're ever, if you're going to do this, you can't look at what other people are doing and say, I want that journey mm -hmm. because only you are you. If you're going to blaze a path, it can't look like anyone else's. Yeah. So you, you got to put blinders on and stay in your lane. Mm -hmm. And it sounds rude, <laughs> but it's so true. Yeah. I think a lot of authors are going to learn that eventually. Okay. I think so. It's the mantra I live by and I find myself coming back to it over and over again because I have to remind myself to even now, even with all the success, to not compare myself to other people. I think that you have to remember that in anything you do, your journey is your own because you are unique and it's not going to look like anyone else's. We weren't all given the same circumstances in life, the same opportunities, the same challenges. And comparing the unfolding of our lives to anyone else's is futile. You're here to blaze a path for others to follow. And you cannot do that if your path looks like someone else's. I always believe and have unwavering faith that what comes my way is unlike anything anyone else ever had. I believe I will always be the exception. That means I usually have to go about things differently. Let me set the path on fire for you to follow and make it your own and never ever forget that the only thing that matters in the equation of your life is you. Well, that was amazing. <laughs> Hopefully it's inspiring. I think it was very inspiring and I can't wait for everybody to listen to this. So. I can't. No, I'm not. I know. <laughs> I can't. We're not even live and we're anxious. But I think it's it was this was really fun and great. And I am glad your journey is going to be out there for people to listen to because I think they need to. It what what made me realize that I needed to tell it is because people don't realize that I was self-published. And that shocks me because for so long I was known as this person who had been a successful indie author. And to have people not recognize that part of my journey, it, it's troublesome to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, I can't quite pinpoint why, but 
But being an indie author meant that I had to go about things differently. It meant that I was not going to make it in the traditional world. And I can see when, when I look back on this path, I can see how many people tried to slam the door in my face and it didn't work. <laughs> it didn't. And all the people that rejected me, by the way, they all represent an indie author now. Um, before we finish, I want to ask one last question. Is there anything you want to say to those who see your success and wonder how they can achieve the same? Yeah, I think, I think you have, I mean, like you said, you uh, listen to this podcast, Yeah, know that it's not an overnight thing. Mm -hmm. And some advice I always give every new author is find a way to yes. Find a way to yes, though, can mean anything. It can mean working on your craft, right? Yes. Um, For me, it meant working on my craft at times. It meant ignoring the haters. It meant not paying attention to what people like experts in the industry had to say, right? Finding a way to yes looks very different. Mm -hmm. Just like your definition of success will look very different. All right. Thank you all for listening to my first podcast episode. Can't wait for the next one. Don't know what it's going to be about, but <laughs> I can assure you it will be an entertaining ride nevertheless. Um, you can follow us on social media. I am author Scarlett St. Clair, mostly active on Instagram. Lexi will make a post about the podcast where you can tell us what you want to hear about next. Lexi, where can readers find you? <laughs> you can find me on Instagram at Reads by Lexi and behind the scenes on Scarlett's page. So I will yeah. update you guys and make sure you're ready for the next one and listen to what you guys want to hear. All right. We'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Bye. <laughs>